You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a discussion on forgiveness. Our main topic is on furry sex. Yef! What makes furry sex uniquely furry? And what does the digital revolution mean for the future of sex? We close out the show with a question on being embarrassed at having a smaller dick than your mate. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. So, it's been kind of a shitty week by a lot of different metrics, by a lot of different just events that have happened. It's, it would be a little bit, I would say, immoral of us to not discuss what happened at Charlottesville and what's happening with the old furries um, in terms of just everything. So Charlottesville, a white power, white nationalist rally turned violent and a white supremacist murdered a counter protester and in cold blood drove, drove a car, murdered Heather Heyer and injured 19 others. There are more, more and more information is coming from everything, whether or not the two uh, state police uh, individuals were involved and could be counted as being killed and by white supremacists. There's a lot of investigation that is still happening. But this marks a, a really negative, a really terrifying part of life for a lot of people who have never had to really kind of face this head on within the furry fandom, as we've discussed on the show, as I've discussed, um, in other media, as we've been on culturally effed and discussed the history of the fandom, as we discussed in the playboy article that we had with Deborah. So the, Alt-right within the fandom is becoming a larger and louder and progressively more violent voice. And the events that occurred at Charlottesville have caused a bit more light to be shed upon those communities. Within the past few days, leaks of their chat logs on Telegram, on Discord, and other forms of social media have come to light. And many individuals who consider themselves part of the alt-fur movement, the, um, the furry raiders, other groups that have allied themselves on that political axis have since realized that what they thought was innocent trolling is actually more violent and reprehensible. And we've been seeing... Within the past few days, a lot of individuals who are leaving those groups and they're seeking forgiveness. And for a lot of us, it can be difficult when their requests for forgiveness are met with, well, I didn't know that it was going to be like that. I didn't know that they were that bad. I didn't know that they were that way. And it's difficult 
because we've been saying this all along. It's difficult for some people who supported Donald Trump, who in many ways failed to appropriately condemn white nationalism. And even when he did, he then blamed the media as being the real bad guys in all of this, and that both sides are at fault. And it was through and through entirely pathetic. And it's difficult for many of us to say, we've told you all of this. We warned you this would happen. And you still proceeded. We've had an episode on forgiveness. And it's important that that we reference that because forgiveness in relationships, within romantic relationships, within physical relationships, is just as important as forgiveness within a community as a whole. We are a liminal community. And it's difficult for me to talk about this, and I get a little bit choked up about this, and I apologize if I make small breaks here and there, because it is a difficult topic to discuss for many people, for many reasons. For those of us who have faced oppression, have faced hatred, have faced bigotry, to see it rise up again and to be ridiculed, to be doxxed, to be harassed, to be the recipient of death threats. It's become evident that a lot of what has been happening within those groups is targeted and it is malicious. And the more and more that we look into it, the more and more that we realize that it is a greater sickness than we really once thought at first glance. Many individuals that were involved thought that this was purely trolling. We're just going to Photoshop pictures of Dio's avatar, of Dio's profile picture, onto people getting shot, people getting beat up, people getting hurt. And it's funny because it elicits a response and we get what we want. But then when you dig into what's being said, you see targeted harassment, you see the fact that Califer, the, the, the conferences in California, BLFC, you see Rocky Mountain Furcon, all of these had coordination in how to advance their beliefs and limit the ability for others to speak. All of this happened clandestine. It happened in private. And people like to say, well, you would prefer it if people, if they didn't have the ability to, to speak their mind. That, that's not the case. That's never been the case. The difference between people who coordinate those kinds of efforts to cause massive damages to conferences, to threaten people at their homes, to contact their workplaces, to coordinate missives of hate is that they often don't sign their name to it. They keep it hidden. They never come public about it. And now that it is public, they're panicking. People question why I say things on Twitter. I say oftentimes very politically divisive things, but I always sign my name to it. And it is important that in cases where we do say things 
that are considered politically divisive, that we stand by it. I could say that I stand by everything that I've said, and will say. But that doesn't help me forgive. Just because I believe that I hold the moral high ground does not make it any easier for me to look at somebody who participated in some tangential form to, to these actions within the community and say, well, you should have known better, but we forgive you. But it's important that I do. It's important that we all do. It's important that we remember forgiveness is not absolution. Just because you forgive somebody does not absolve them of the responsibility to be held accountable for their actions. And that's a really important point. That's one that I like to make about forgiveness all the time. Is just because you've forgiven somebody doesn't mean you invite them back into your life and give them another opportunity to hurt you. You can forgive someone and no longer hold a grudge and no longer you know, really maintain the hatred you feel for them or the actions or the damages they've caused you. You can release that tension by forgiving them. That doesn't mean you have to invite them back to get to it all over again. You can still keep your distance and not want to re-engage with that person. And there's, a, you know, and that doesn't mean that you know. Again, forgiveness really means necessarily a clean slate either. You can still remember that you were harmed, and you can still want to keep that person at arm's length. But that doesn't mean you have to hold a grudge or be emotionally bound up with that person. You just want to not engage with them, and that's a perfectly reasonable thing to want. Do you know? We've all made mistakes. Everybody is liable for mistakes. When it comes to the idea of civil rights and equal representation and equity, oftentimes many of us come from the wrong position from the get-go. And it takes time for us to acknowledge that, and it takes time for us to understand that just because we have it good doesn't mean that everybody else does. And in the past, I certainly have said things that are completely false. And I've had to kind of face myself in the mirror and say, well, it looks like I'm a shithead. And it's a difficult kind of self-introspection. Individuals that are coming from these organizations will say, a lot of the time they're younger. They're not as politically informed. They're not as experienced in life. And communities like the alt-right tend to prey upon those kinds of individuals. It's important that we, when we encounter people who are leaving the alt-right, the furry raiders, other communities like that, we take the time to let them know that they made a mistake, yes. And oftentimes they come out and they admit that. It isn't right for us, though, to rub their faces into it. If somebody has made a mistake and they are seeking forgiveness, it is the right thing to do. It is the moral thing to do to forgive them. Obviously, as Vero said, that doesn't mean that you become best friends forever. But you can then begin to try to integrate them into the fandom as a whole. As it stands, we as a fandom are fractured. We have individuals who seek to undermine 
and individuals who seek to harm. And there are people that are caught up in that without knowing what's actually happening. And while it is easier, far easier, for us to say, fuck you, get the fuck out, that's not the right thing to do. It's, uh, there's an adage that there is an easy way to do things and there is a right way to do things. And it is important for us, if we claim to have a moral high ground, to do things the right way. That means that we forgive. That means that we work hard with these individuals to help guide them to a more moral understanding. We give them the literature. We point them in the right directions. We give them the information that they need in order to be more fully developed individuals. And then from there, they can make their own decisions. From there, they're able to make fully cognizant, fully aware, fully mature conclusions. We shouldn't bully people who are looking for forgiveness. We shouldn't drag them through the mud. We shouldn't Game of Thrones style make them walk around Anthrocon while all of us walk behind them with a bell screaming out shame. That doesn't encourage people to admit that they're wrong. It forces them to double down. If we really want to be accepting and we really want to be tolerant and we really want to be equitable, when people seek forgiveness, we need to extend it. That being said, it is difficult to do. It's a hard path to take because we then somewhat become responsible for ensuring that their mistakes from that point on, we can quickly acknowledge. And we don't rub it in their faces like, oh, well, of course you would say that. You were part of the Furry Raiders. Of course you would say that. You were part of the alt-right. We don't constantly bring up their past mistakes. We frame it in a new light. We frame it in the light of progression. It's a difficult topic forgiveness, especially when it's forgiveness for people who participate in what many states and many legislations are calling a hate group. But if we really want to come from the position of love and tolerance and mutual respect, and we really want the fandom to continue to mean something on that level, don't drag people through the mud once they have asked for forgiveness. Don't drag people through the mud when they are trying to make themselves better, again, forces a double down. In relationships, there are sometimes things that are deal breakers. Infidelity, a loss of trust, promises broken. People coming from these organizations are looking to forge new connections. And it can be difficult for us because we are so polarized right now. It can be difficult to accept that people can move from one side to the other. But by being forgiving and by being patient and understanding, we can help ease that transition. And genuinely speaking, the more people that are drawn to us in that way, the more people will tend to follow. Hate is never an acceptable response to hatred. 
I'm not saying that when they go low, we go high. But what I am saying is that when they come asking for forgiveness, when they come knocking on your door, offer them a seat. Again, it's not easy, but it's the right thing to do. And that's not to say that if you've been personally harmed, you need to necessarily extend invitations to dinner. I mean, it means that you tolerate these people's existence in the fandom somewhere without necessarily needing to engage with them. If they are contrite and want to re-engage in the fandom without expressing these hateful views, you need to readmit them to the fandom, I think, because that's the right thing to do. If they really are contrite and remorseful and not just, you know, pretending in order to fit back in with their friends, right? There's actually some proper intent there. Um, I think it's reasonable to let those people actually be reaccommodated because it's important not to, to leave people in, in, out in the cold when they really have realized that what they're doing isn't necessarily the right way, especially since many of these people were, in fact, kind of co-opted to begin with. It's, it's important to keep that in mind. So, yeah, I think that is the right thing to do because not, not a lot of these people grew up saying, I want to be a Nazi when I grow up, but instead we're just kind of, you know, recruited from some stupid 4chan, you know, board, right? Like, it's not... Yeah. It's not exactly the same thing. So you got to keep that in mind. Some of these people are just disaffected and looking to be angry and found an angry group to sign up with and would have been just as happy signing up with, you know, Occupy Wall Street, but pick the other, this group because it's what reached out to them, right? So it's not, not all of it's ideology driven. I think it's important to keep that as part of the, uh, mm-hmm. keep that in mind, you know? Um, that's not that all the same Nazi apologists, but just that like, some of the people marching are just angry people. And you need, it's important to remember that these, some of these people still have consciences and not every person who, you know, participated in Nazi Germany was evil. Some of them were disobeying authority figures or obeying people who they thought were going to validate them and were just really misguided. And it's important, I think, to forgive those people and to distinguish them from the truly evil mastermind ringleaders who put all, put all of it together, right? Those, those people I don't have much forgiveness for. Exactly. And as a note, for people who find themselves holding bigoted viewpoints, who find themselves within the white supremacy groups, the organizations, and they're looking for a way out, I highly, highly recommend that you look into the resources that are offered by an organization by the name of Life After Hate. It's an organization formed by former members of white supremacy groups the KKK, they have been able to move beyond their prejudices and they're able to provide a unique viewpoint into why they thought the way that they thought. And they provide good materials on how to make steps towards being essentially a better person. So I would highly recommend you look at their organization and if you find that you have need, please reach out. So I know that that's kind of a heavy topic to lead off with, but again, it's kind of a moral obligation of ours. This fandom is too many people a home. We find so much of our identity. It gets intertwined within not only the personas that we create, but the, the bonds that we establish the, the communities that we build within this larger community. And it's difficult to not view it as being intersectional. And if we want to use terminology that 
people on the right would generally use, it is a marketplace of ideas. If we genuinely want their ideas to die out, we need to make ours look more appealing. The best way we can do that is through forgiveness, through resources, through materials, and through patience. We have to take the high road. We have to take the high road because it's the right road. Not saying we can't be angry. Yeah, exactly. And that means, and you know, anger really is a tragically expressed emotion. It's an alienating emotion. And I think it's important to allow yourself to reconnect with these individuals through empathy. And there's nothing, you're, you aren't necessarily a bad person by empathizing with someone who has done things that were misguided that they didn't understand the full ramifications of versus someone who's done things while while understanding the full ramifications of their actions. So someone who says, oh my gosh, I thought this was just about posting angry memes. Now now we're killing people in the streets. This is not what I signed up for. And that person wants to come back into the fandom. I say, sure, because that person just got in way over their head, I feel, you know, then that's, I think, forgivable versus someone who, you know, thought it would maybe orchestrate the idea of running into somebody in a crowd, you know, that's not forgivable. That's evil to me. I mean, to me, that's pretty unforgivable evil. So, you know, that's, I think everyone's draws their own, has their own line to draw there. I'm not going to tell anybody where to draw theirs, but for me, I'm a kind of forgiving person, maybe almost to a fault. I think Mexico will back me up on that. Maybe don't take, don't take my advice on that too seriously. I'm probably far too forgiving, but I think forgiveness and empathy are pretty important tools for keeping humanity a pretty nice place to be. But that's only, I think the thing is forgiveness does need to be earned by having proper good intentions and actually being contrite and actually wishing to make amends for things you've done while being misguided, right? It's forgiveness and empathy keep us grounded in humanity when we face inhumanity. It's not to say it doesn't deserve to be stamped out but we can't become the shadow that we chase. That's the thing, right? Because like, you know, everyone wants to say, go punch the Nazis, but it's like, well, that I'm, I, I practice nonviolent communication. That's like the opposite of nonviolent communication. And like, there certainly are, again, I think those, the Nazi organizers, yeah, go punch them, right? But punching the followers to me doesn't seem effective. The followers, I feel like you need, you, you need to empathize with them so that they might empathize with you and realize they're, that they are misguided. They can be brought back into the fold, right? It's the organizers who should go out and punch. (laughs) So try to distinguish the two, right? You know, nobody's blameless. And again, we're not saying, yo, go out and hug a Nazi. Nope. But what we are saying is that when people realize that they have wronged and when people realize that they are misguided, use that as an opportunity to teach, to attract, to help them learn and grow Don't use it as an opportunity to rub their face in the wrongdoing that they have engaged in. Especially, especially, if they didn't know what they were getting into. That happens all too often in these kinds of movements, within cults, within far-right movements. They just get swept up, and they don't realize what's happening. Unfortunately, alienating these people will only further and further radicalize them, right? So that's the thing, is by rejecting these people... At infinitum, you basically force them to <laughs> out of the community and into a place of being the other. And when someone is becomes the hated other, that's not a very friendly or happy place to be. That's how you create enemies. And you don't necessarily want to make enemies of people who are already angry and disaffected. That, that's not to say that you have to, you know, tolerate them just because they're a threat to you. But 
it just makes good sense that you don't want to necessarily have your enemies be an alienated other that you have you, don't, you have no tabs on. That's not really a good strategy, even as just in terms of survival, right? By no means are we the gatekeepers to the fandom, and by no means are we the individuals that decide what is good and what is bad. This is just our take on it, and it is an ongoing discussion. It is an ongoing conversation that all of us have to have. We welcome your viewpoints on it. Whether you agree with us, whether you disagree with us, whether you think we go too far or not far enough, this is a conversation that we need to have because the fandom is in crisis. Yeah. We have a problem. It certainly is. We do. And the thing is, when I say empathize, I don't empathize with people who are actively espousing Nazi positions, right? I want to be very careful to say that because I'm a very staunch anti fascist myself. And you'll, if you follow my Twitter, you'll see me like go after people making really shitty fascist statements on Twitter sometimes because I do feel the need to confront those pretty head on and not necessarily in a way that uses nonviolent communication because I do feel that some of those statements just need to be brought with a bit more uh, brutality. But the thing is, when someone is actually then contrite, that's where the empathy should be kicking in. It's, okay, this person has realized themselves internally that they, what they are doing is wrong and wants to change. That's when I think the empathy should be kicking in, not before, right? Yeah, so... To all the people who are doing everything they can to bring light to the shine a light on the individuals who are orchestrating, who are organizing, who are furthering the cause of fascism, of violence within the fandom, Godspeed. It's you are doing a great service because we can't be tolerant of that. Yeah, I kind of think of these organizers as being kind of like the, uh, I don't know, in tumors, you have these these kind of like stem cell, tumor stem cells that kind of are responsible for the entire rest of the tumor. And I kind of feel like these organizers are basically the tumor stem cells, right? It's really those that we want to zap with a little bit of targeted uh, radiation. <laughs> and if we can do that, hopefully the rest of the cells don't really, have, don't really stick together as a tumor for very much longer. We can get this cancer of fascism out of the fandom. So that's really, that's really the goal. And so again, it's a evolving, ongoing conversation that we have to have as a fandom. This is our contribution to it. And it's important that we all have contributions in it. This is not something where we can stand idly by, regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless of sexual orientation. This affects and impacts everyone. So let's have this conversation we're going to move on to our main topic, though. Uh, and again, it's my apologies for kind of a heavier top of the show, because this was meant to be a fun show. This was meant to be a show where we talk about sex and it's great and fun and <laughs> it's lighthearted. We're having a summer of fun, but fucking Nazis, man. Fucking Nazis. What yeah, the what, fuck? What call. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes you just got to deal with the news but so that's the news and it's shitty news and it it's fucking terrifying for a lot of people it's terrifying for me but we do want to talk about sex <laughs> because that is kind of the point of the show and we want to talk about sex within the fandom and, and approaching it in different ways because we talk about the act of sex we talk about 
different positions, different types, all that good stuff, but we've never actually had a conversation about sex in the fandom. Why is it that we have sex, not just as furries, but also as meat space humans? And coming from a different perspective also, like, why is it that, what is it that makes sex in the fandom unique? And that's something that, like, is, I think, kind of with my perspective on it, because I feel like people ask us a lot, like, okay, you guys, why aren't you just a general relationship podcast? Like, why aren't, what makes Feral Attraction a furry sex and relationship podcast and not just a millennial sex and relationship podcast or a gay millennial relationship podcast or whatever they think we are, right? So that's a good question. And I think, you know, we do talk about furry aspects quite often, but sometimes you couldn't mistake us for just being a regular old relationship podcast because the dirty little secret is a lot of our advice is perfectly useful to people who aren't furry as well. But the thing is, there is a, some, there are a lot of unique aspects to how we perform sexually in the fandom. And I think it'd be kind of fun to make a show where we talk about some of the reasons why sex happens in the fandom and elsewhere. And then also, you know, so that's going to be kind of Metrica talking about kind of the academic side of that. And then I'm going to talk a bit more about the exper- experiential side of to me, what makes the sex that I have in the fandom uh, uniquely furry versus any you know, sex I might have with someone who's not furry or something like that. So we'll kind of save the, the really fun stuff for towards the second half of the show once we get through Metrico pumping in some, some knowledge, right? Isn't that right, Panda? Yep. So it's a bit of a role reversal in this one <laughs> where I'm using a bit of my academic knowledge, whereas I tend to be a little bit more of the fun, fluffy Red Panda I wanted to talk about sex because it's important that we understand why we look to have sex because we're entering a digital revolution where sex happens more and more online and furries. We are kind of to blame for that, but I'll get to that in a second. So a little bit of a lecture and mind you, all of this is research that is ongoing. What I'm about to discuss and these are places yeah, where Metrico and I might disagree here and there's because I have a background in evolutionary biology too. And in fact, frankly, my science is probably getting a little rusty. So if I have some questions at some points, Metrico, feel free to, uh, to let me know when I'm getting a little bit old school on you. Okay, that's completely fine. So when people look for sex, sex is kind of this biological drive that we have. But if we ignore that and we ask, what is it that really turns us on about sex? It's really the sensation of it. People get turned on by imagining what the touch will be, what the smell will be, how wet the cock is, how wet the pussy is, how tight the ass is. The sensation is what really draws people to sex. There's a reason that sex is not passive. And by that, what I mean, when we talk about passive acts and sex, we're talking either you ignore the fact that you're turned on or you take care of it yourself. Masturbation is more passive than active because you're not necessarily out there looking for somebody to have sex with. You are able to kind of tend to your own garden to borrow some language from Voltaire. Sex is not a passive act, and it actually forces us to look beyond ourself, our, our, our individual unique selves. Sex is far more difficult for us to engage in by that simple nature, because it takes at least two to tango 
And self-pleasure, you can just kind of close your eyes, imagine what it would feel like to be having sex right now, and congratulations, you're able to get yourself off. So the question is then, why do we engage? Why do we look to have sex? And then even beyond that, why is sex advantageous? If we look at many uh, organisms within nature, for example, they reproduce asexually or they reproduce passively. You can look at the way that trees reproduce, the way that flowers reproduce, the way that single-celled organisms reproduce. Many of them reproduce asexually or passively by having their pollen spread by other organisms through a symbiotic you know, survival structure. Flowers have pollen that they need to get from flower to flower, from stigma to stigma, from stamen to stamen. But they also have nectar, which bees really like. And they need for survival to build their colonies, to make honey that we as humans enjoy. And we enjoy honeybees and flowers in the springtime because honeybees are bros and flowers are beautiful to look at. That's a lot easier to have sex as. As a flower, you just bloom... You pollinate, and then you die. Single-celled organisms tend to reproduce by cloning themselves. They split in half, and huzzah, they have the same genetic structure, the same genetic code. They just There are now two of them where there used to be one. Why did humans and other mammals and other organisms that are more complex than a single-celled organism decide to stop cloning ourselves and start having sex. Well, the earlier theory behind this, it's actually known as the Red Queen Hypothesis, and it's an evolutionarily bi- it's, it's evolutionary biology. Um, and it's actually named after um, Alice in Wonderland, uh, after the Red Queen. And the theory is, is that if we compare ourselves to parasites on a host, so we are fleas on a host... Over time, the host will mutate in order to repel us, to prevent us from getting nutrients, from being able to reproduce. So if we rapidly reproduce, and it's easier for us to do that sexually, then we begin to mutate faster than the host does. Um, it's essentially an arms race. Um, to have as much of your following generation, your progeny, survive as possible. But that doesn't necessarily hold up, because again, if you just kind of clone yourself, it's easier. And over time, it, it kind of balances out. It's, it's, it's far less energy uh, consuming to just say, like, there's one of me, but now there are two of me. And sure, we all might die out, but it's far more energy efficient. So the Red Queen hypothesis was really what was kind of held for the longest period of time. But we have some modern theory now and some more nasty terms. So if we think about eukaryotic cells, so I'm not even going to get into like what it's a complex cell. It's a cell that is by definition, one of the things that eukaryotic cells all share is that they have mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell it is where all energy basically comes from it is how the cell symbiotic theory yes which is basically the idea that we ate mitochondria or that that eukaryotic cells ate mitochondria which used to just be free living bacteria and then they became dedicated energy producers for the cells we kind of just harnessed them to use them like basically i've seen the matrix where we just kind of plug people in and use them as batteries that's essentially what we did to the mitochondria yes so there you go. Just, just a, to help you out there. 
<laughs> there is a problem with mitochondria, though. They mutate faster than we do. Because they're bacteria, basically. Yes. Yes. They're bacteria. And they change faster than we do. And if we allow them to change over time, they're going to fuck us over. They're going to find ways to no longer produce for us. Their mutations outpace us on a longer scale. So this isn't to say that by the end of your life, your mitochondria are going to reject you and that's why you die. That's not the case. This is more on an evolutionary scale over uh, generations and generations and generations. So if we were to reproduce asexually to where if I'm like, you know what, I need a kid and then bamf, I split in half and there's two of me. Congratulations, I have a kid. Mitochondria over time would mutate to a point where they are no longer usable. Mitochondria need to have new genomes injected into them. And the easiest way for us to inject new genomes into our progeny is to split them in half and combine them with another person. In this case, the act of sexual reproduction. The new, gene, the new genetic code, the new genetic material that is then created through a zygote and then an embryo and then, congratulations, a human or a pup or a kitty is then much more compatible with the mitochondria's needs. And we are able to keep up faster pace in terms of the mutation that the mitochondria makes. Yeah. So I think one thing that's important to uh, dis distinguish, I don't want to get too into the weeds of the science here. Yeah. But it's kind of, <laughs> It's kind of what well, I think of it more as like the mitochondria need a nice house and sexual selection ensures that the mitochondria that mommy gives you, which all your mitochondria essentially come from your mother because your dad just gives you a sperm and it's just, it's just got DNA in it. So your mother, your matrilineal mitochondria basically get reduced down to basically one cell that's viable because, and the cell says, okay, these mitochondria are still good. Just this batch hasn't gone bad yet. So we reduce down to that and then we still get the genetic diversity of bringing in genetic material from another person. So the, basically the house is being redecorated, but we're keeping that foundation, which is the mitochondria that we've gotten from mom. So it's kind of like this, first we verify that the mitochondria are viable because this egg is viable. And then we've got the new rearranging, the, the, the housing for the mitochondria, while ensuring that the mitochondria has a, run, has a runway evolution going on just by going, keeping the same lineage going forever and ever and ever, right? So reducing down to one cell and then expanding back outwards is a much more uh, efficient way of cutting down on the mitochondria gets a chance to evolve over time while also still allowing you to change the decorations of the house that you're in. And I like using analogies and metaphors a lot while explaining really complicated evolutionary biology because, I mean, I do have a background as a science educator, but like it's tough to understand some of this stuff. And a lot of these theories are still kind of in flux. Frankly, why people why sex happens is one of the least well understood things in evolutionary biology despite it being such an obvious like topic so if these theories sound a little bit no offense to them bullshitty it's because they're kind of hand wavy and bullshitty uh yeah my favorite explanation <laughs> for why sex happens and so i i again i'm, I'm, I'm a graduate degree in science right so my my graduate evolutionary biology professor was amazing and she was a wonderful person and she had a, she had a great uh, british accent but she liked to say well, you know, when people ask me why do you know, organisms reproduce sexually, her answer is always, because it works. <laughs> and frankly, that actually is the reason why anything happens in nature. It's because it fucking works. And it happened randomly one time, and it worked well enough that it kept happening. That's literally the reason, right? So we can try to come up with all these cute theories for why it's great, 
But maybe it's not that great. Maybe it's actually not so good at all. But we, it just happened to fucking work. Kind of like how we have Donald Trump as our president right now. It doesn't work so well, but it kind of just randomly happened. So we're just living with it. <laughs> this is a very, you know, that's kind of how that, you know, we can kind of see that as being a, the evolution, unfortunately, we like to call it a blind watchmaker. We can't actually see what, evolution doesn't see what it's creating when it, when it makes stuff. So if an organism randomly reproduced sexually one time, I mean, this is kind of that's not a bit of oversimplification, but the fact that it happened and it kept happening just means that it worked well enough. It doesn't mean that it worked great. It just means that it worked well enough to keep happening. It's kind of like, you know, passing your, passing your way through school rather than getting great grades, right? We don't necessarily know that evolution is getting great grades. Evolution might be flying by with seas. We don't actually know. <laughs> So before we get any further into the weeds, <laughs> I, I could talk about this forever. I'm a scientist. Yeah. So one note is that, as I was going to say, this theory, it's kind of hand wavy because we know that eukaryotic cells do reproduce asexually. Um, this is a modern discovery. This happens fairly recently and we're not really sure why. The question as to why we have sex, why do we develop sex, we still don't know. That's one theory. But it's important to understand that theory because we don't care about it. I wanted to talk about it so I would look smart. Not really. But because it's important <laughs> to kind of understand on one level, why is it biologically that we have sex? I'm going to say it works. <laughs> that's a completely fine one. But we're not here to talk about biology. We're here to talk Damn about it. Aww. We're here to talk about you. So, science collie mode off for a second. We're going into psychology time. Fine. Why do we have sex now? If we ignore evolution, what is it that we're looking for in sex? Really, it's sexual self-determination. We can look at maybe people want kids, but that's an aspect of sexual self-determination. When we talk about sexual self-determination, we are talking about the drive to have shared experiences and intimacy. That shared experience could be a BDSM scene. It can be missionary. It can be a long-term relationship with children, a house with a white picket fence. Sexual self-determination in individuals is the drive that we have to have sex. And it sounds a little bit kind of redundant. We have sex because we want to self-determine the type of sex we have. Yeah, because it brings forward emotional sort of fulfillment. It's on, if you look at the hierarchy of needs, it is kind of fully well entrenched in self-actualization. Sexual self-determination is a form of actualization of self. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, I think Metropolis was kind of deter describing what the ideal function that sex serves and why, if, why people have sex. And I think that's absolutely true. It's ultimately why everyone seeks sex. It's why sex is a human need. Um, but I think it's also important to point out that some people have sex for reasons that are maybe slightly less pure sometimes as well. Sometimes people have sex in order to, to obtain validation because they are not yet very good at self validating because they are dealing coping with a lot of shame and you can go back to our episodes on shame uh, to address uh, that sometimes people have sex simply because they have really poor self-esteem and they actually see letting someone else use their body as kind of almost a way of, of self-harm and that's a really tragic reason that people have sex and that can be a component of things like borderline personality disorder uh, so that some of the promiscuity that people experience is not always for fun reasons 
and it's important to remember that and that people aren't always having sex for fun. But ultimately, a lot of people do have sex for pleasure. That's the main reason people have sex, it's for pleasure. And then there's also having sex for human connection. So, you know, there's lots of reasons people can have sex. And sex, self-determination is kind of an umbrella term that captures all of those. Uh, an, an ideal situation is you're self-determining, but maybe not if you are someone who has really poor self-esteem and is having sex because you can't feel good about yourself otherwise, right? Yep. And you're slightly jumping ahead of my script, which is perfectly fine. That's because we like to keep the show conversational, Metrico. <laughs> As I said, it's perfectly fine. It's Sexual self-determination in terms of actualization is actually tied to the idea of community. And it's the idea that through engaging in intimate relationships, you build a community. And community means safety. This is why we kind of observe levels of sexual self-determination amongst pack animals for you know, a, a minor example. It's not necessarily a human trait. The thing is, is that it's difficult to quantify emotional intimacy in pack animals and in other forms of animals because we're not fully 100% sure if they experience that. Right now, science points to no, but that could change. Humans currently are really one of the few sorts of creatures that are able to experience and express emotional intimacy. We see some examples in pack animals like wolves, elephants, birds, things of that nature. But, no, but it's not so maybe to some extent. Yeah. But it's not as fully sort of entrenched within identity. Within humans, Sexual self-determination and emotional intimacy have become tied together. And of course, this is in varying extents. Not everybody that has sex is looking for emotional intimacy, and not everybody that is looking for emotional intimacy is looking for sex. But they are tied together on a cultural level. This is why people who are not heterosexual engage in sex as well. It is not strictly to procreate. It's because those two are tied together. And that's important to understand, because if you look at it in terms of evolution, there makes no fucking sense that two guys would want to fuck each other. Just It, no, it doesn't make sense. Really. It, maybe it does, though, if those people are then going to become brothers who defend the homeland, right? And maybe that, then their third, the third brother ends up raising family, and they have their shared genes that go on to the rise. So there actually are some revolutionary theories that could back that up, but that's a little bit again in the weeds, yeah, so we're going to stay out of the weeds, though, because we're oh, going to talk like about... I understand, but... I'm in Seattle. We're allowed to do that here. I want to talk about, you know, this is all kind of academic theory, and <laughs> it's all fun, and it's understand. It's it's not fun. It's It's a lesson. And I apologize for doing that to you, but we have a little bit more to get through. I don't apologize. I love this. <laughs> we're going to talk about furry identity, because we'll take away... The, the entrapments of, you know, uh, evolutionary biology. We're going to talk about us as furries. We're going to talk yeah, about sex. Side. Yeah, this is the fun stuff. We're going to talk about sexual self-determination within the furry fandom. And I'm going to talk about how we are now and kind of where we're going, where things are trending. Because... Sexual self-determination gets a little bit wonky when you throw in a fursona. Sexual self-determination 
is kind of this weird thing that most cisgendered individuals don't actually have to go through because it relies on two separate aspects. It is the ability to pursue sexual encounters with your preferred gender, and it is the ability to portray yourself as your own identity. That can be your gender identity, your sexual preferences. It could be anything that you want it to be. Within the fandom, identity is kind of tied into our personas. Again, this is in varying degrees. So it does actually become part of sexual self-determination. So if you are within the fandom and you have a strong connection to your persona, Let's say that I view myself as both a hybrid individual, me as the person and me as the person. That becomes entrenched within my identity. And so when I portray myself to other people and within the fandom that I'm seeking relationships with, that I'm seeking to form emotional connections with, Metrico is as essential to the identity as the meat spaces. And this kind of causes some issues. There's this idea of um, corporeal inconsistency. So let's say that your identity online, let's say I'm Metrico and I want to be a big bara panda. There would be a corporeal inconsistency because that does not match me in real life. The avatar, the identity, the fursona has a distinct, it is not the same as me. You can look at it even on a base level. I'm not a red panda in real life. If you mean me, I'm not a red panda, I promise. I, I may look adorable, but I'm not one. I'm sorry about it. It's a corporeal inconsistency. And this happens a lot when you engage with people online. And it's it's strictly where the avatar, the identity, does not match the meat space. So when differences of that nature happen, it becomes difficult to form personifiable. Pers um, it, it becomes difficult. Let me use a different word because I'm having problems with that one. It becomes difficult to form tangible emotional intimacy. And by that, I mean by standard cultural means. Furry is a weird one, though, because we are both performative and expressive in terms of nature and identity. And this is where the corporeal inconsistency kind of plays a little bit of a part. Furries tend to fall into two different camps. You either have a persona that is just your identity online. You might roleplay, you might identify as it on Twitter, you might sort of perform in real life if you have a fursuit, but you don't have a deep-rooted identity that is entrenched with your fursona being part of who you are. And then you have people on the other side of the spectrum where these furries will identify on a deeper level as their fursona, which then resonates with their self-actualized identity, and then that then complicates sexual self-determination. So with those individuals, in order to form emotional, emotionally intimate bonds, their partner, their mate, their lover, has to accept both parts of the identity because it's a singular entity in that aspect. 
if it's something that you just have, have as a performance, let's say, I mean, I did drag. When I was in drag, I performed as a female. But when I'm not in drag, I'm, a, I'm you know, I'm cisgendered. So for me, drag dressing up as a girl was performative. It was not a core portion of my identity. Whereas within the fandom, I do identify as my fursona because to me, I've just created it as my sort of extension into the, the furry fandom. So for me, Metrico is me because that was kind of the intention of Metrico as a fursona creation. It's unique because I chose that. For some people, they feel, you know, the wand chooses the wizard, Harry. For some people, the fursona chose them. It's unique because you don't see this in other fandoms, and that's why it's kind of exciting. You can somewhat see it within the My Little Pony uh, fandom with bronies making their pony-sonas or within Zootopia-sonas or Sonic fan characters. But within the furry fandom, we have no narrative. We have no pre-existing history. There is no canon that we can point to. We don't come from a Sonic universe. We don't come from a Doctor Who universe. We don't come from any other universe but the one of our own creation. Therefore, the identities that we create within the fandom become further entrenched with our own unique identity. It's kind of a weird sort of thing to think about, but for a lot of furries, you can't accept one without the other. You might find that their fursona is attractive, but their real-life meat space human body is not as attractive to you. And this happens a lot to people. So they're unable to build that emotional, intimate connection that they're looking for. Within the fandom, when you have different parts to an identity that forms the core, you kind of have to accept both parts. This is why corporeal inconsistency can be really difficult for people that are looking for relationships in meat space, and they discover that they may not be as attracted to the individual in meat space itself as they are to their avatar. So it's kind of a tricky thing. This can kind of hurt the sex drive because then the sex doesn't kind of enter the physical form. And when it doesn't do that, sex without physical interaction over time tends to be less rewarding and less fulfilling. This is why you sort of see, like when you watch a porn, you don't get emotionally invested in the porn actors or the actresses. You just kind of get off and then you turn it off. If you go to a campsite, you don't necessarily build an emotional attraction or an intimate connection with the camp star. You get off, you get done, you move on with your life. There's no need to build that. But within the fandom, we're because we know that it is a performance that is occurring. The camp star isn't really that into you. They might just be acting that way. The porn star is an actor or an actress, and that's not a reflection of reality. But within the fandom, where our identities on the internet and our identities with our personas tinge our perception and the world that we create around us, it becomes that much more difficult. Furry identity, what it boils down to, it is different from cisgendered human identity. Cisgendered human identity is performative. It doesn't really enter the realm of identity because you're, 
you never have to really kind of consider it. There's no deep consideration. If you're a cisgendered heterosexual individual, you've kind of hit the jackpot in not having to worry about having an identity crisis because you kind of know who you are. If you have a dick, you're congrats. You're a dude. You like girls. You like guys. Congrats. There's little corporeal inconsistency there because you don't have to feel like there's an actual identity that you have that is not representative of how your body is now. When people have uh, issues with uh, gender dysphoria, oh, oh my god, I tried to swallow before I spoke, and that didn't go through as well as I thought it would. My apologies. So, <laughs> wow, I got kind of talking. So, gender dysphoria, it's what a lot of people who identify as trans go through where the reflection, the physical meat space reflection does not correspond to the gender identity that they have. Their identity is not performative because it doesn't reflect the reality. There is a corporeal dissonance that is occurring. It does not match. It is inconsistent. Furry kind of operates in the same way because if Vero and I had never met in person, and if he were expecting to see a little red panda the first time he were to have ever met me, he would be kind of surprised. There is a corporeal inconsistency there. Perhaps that is the case, yes. Furry identity, with the you know advent and the evolution of the internet, really drove home the following point. What is identity in the digital age? And how does that impact sexual self-determination? And it's a fascinating fucking question. Because as the internet evolves and grows and tools become more and more developed and more and more advanced, the world between digital and meat space are slowly kind of merging into one little blob. This is kind of really fun, and it gets a little bit less academic from here, and I'm sorry for taking you through like a really weird whirlwind of Psychology 101, but we're going to talk about the internet now, and this is digital sex and roleplay and virtual reality and all of that good shit that I promised you we would get through if we could get it's through It's fun this. stuff. Yeah, this is cool stuff. We'll get to the fun part of like how, how basically how this actually works now for you online, and I'll talk about the how it works in meat space part, and then we'll be done. So, digital... Reality, the internet, we'll say. It serves for many people as the first step you're able to take towards sexual self-determination. So, communities, we'll say the furry fandom. We generate and we foster a safe space where people are more comfortable to explore. They feel less endangered of being ridiculed when they self-explore. Whether that's gender identity, whether that's sexual orientation, whether that's really anything under the sun, kink, anything, the furry fandom generates a safe haven for people to explore. We have a focus on sex positivity, and it is important that we continue to do that because it allows for us to create and foster shared experiences and experimentation in a safe fashion. When we crack down on sex positivity, and I'm not saying that we need to fuck in the middle of a con lobby, what I am saying is that for people that use furry mucks, tapestries, Furcadia, Second Life, Twitter DMs, Snapchat, 
telegram, whatever it might be. We may think that it's weird, but for a lot of people, they are taking the first steps towards self-actualization. And it is important that we allow that to continue to happen. Because if we crack down on people becoming self-actualized and having self-determination, we are revoking the ability for them to have sexual agency and, quite frankly, agency of their lives at all. And as the internet continues to evolve and grow, this is going to become more and more important. Now, within the United States, there are a lot of places. Uh, I can think of Arkansas, Louisiana, Tennessee, North Carolina, just off the top of my head, that are legislating slightly and heavily against LGBT individuals. Whether it's trans bathroom bills, whether it's the ability to discuss gay rights issues within classrooms or academic curriculum, whether it's the ability to have classes dedicated to queer theory within colleges. In locales where that happens, we find that the internet serves as the safe place for individuals within those regions to explore and learn more about their potential desires to see if they are genuine or not. The internet serves as an experimentation ground. Now, the reason we kind of know this is because Pornhub did a shit ton of research, and they found that it by people who view porn, states that legislate the most against LGBT rights have the highest rates of LGBT porn viewing. This happens in Utah. This happens in every state that I just mentioned. So what happens here is that people are able, if you can't talk about it in person, you have to take it to the next place, which is the internet. And that's where your identity begins to grow. That's where your identity becomes to foster. You seek communities that enable you to have these conversations. The furry fandom has served as a good community, but as we talked about in the top of the show, other communities kind of take those individuals who are emotionally vulnerable and looking for acceptance, and they jade it, and they twist it, and they warp it. So this is why it's important that we continue to stay sex positive. This is also slightly true for paraphilias on some level. If you go to the Nifty Archive, which is an archive of gay sex stories, you will see various paraphilias are discussed and written about in a fantasy format. There are some legally questionably gray areas concerning this. In fact, a lot of the research into digital representation and identity started when people on Second Life had underaged avatars that engaged in sex. Is that illegal? Is it illegal to depict that form of sexual act with an avatar, with a fictional digital software, with, with, with polygons? Does that become illegal? Um, the court said no, but research has started into this area, which is why we have all of this good documentation. What the research has shown is that discouraging sexual acts does nothing to halt their expression. Doubly so online. So when it comes to the furry fandom, when we talk about sexual expression, sexual self-determination, what ends up being the case is that we couldn't really meet in person, especially way back when, to have these kinds of discussions. Conventions were far less common, and we were far more spread out. 
So how did we do it? We helped foster the goddamn internet. The internet was built on the back of the military and furries wanting goddamn porn. And I will hold that to my dying day. We allowed for the dissemination and the discussion of sex. And by doing that, we merged our identities with our online identities. And that becomes a little bit strange again, because we've moved to a point where sex no longer really requires a physical presence of another person. We engage in so many different forms of sex on the internet. And for most people that are not part of the fandom, they might look at porn. They might go to a campsite. For us, we write literature. We create art. We have all of the resources I listed earlier. Furry Mock Tapestries, Furcadia, Second Life. All of these locales where we can go and engage in having sexual exploration by creating a narrative that is shared between the two or more of us. But we've also developed a secondary sort of thing alongside it. We've begun to be able to find emotional intimacy in these actions. Now, as we discussed way earlier, people have sex for emotional intimacy. People have sex for genomic combinations. When sex happens online, all of that kind of falters and fails, except within the fandom. Because we've discovered the goddamn fucking secret that sex is not 100% a physical thing. It is an act of creation. It is a mutually shared fantasy. It is a mutually shared narrative. Now, for campsites, for cybersex, for things that aren't type-fucking, that aren't role-playing, it tends to be a one-side transaction. You watch somebody get naked on a cam, you watch a porn, and then they you, 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 you get off. You have sexual release, and that's the end of it. You can go on your merry fucking way. It is passive. Furry identity and online sex has shifted to an active role where people seek out roleplay partners, where people seek out the tools in order to have emotionally intimate narratives that they are able to craft. And this is where the future is. This is really fucking exciting because the rest of the world is trending this way with adv with advances in VR, where we, we're seeing in Japan, a lot of people are having VR sex where they're creating these horrific looking contraptions that you can kind of hook your dick inside of if you're looking for penetratables or you can have something inside of you if you're looking for actual penetration. Sex is becoming more and more mutually shared. And with VR, people are able to, from different sides of the world, get together and have sex with one another, but not with just one another, but with their online identities. And that's where everything becomes fucking merged, and it's goddamn beautiful. We've been doing this for ages, and everybody else is finally catching up with us, and they're having to take lessons from us, because we've kind of cracked the secret. We require more imagination within our sex scenes. We require more of a narrative building. It is less about physical flesh and blood. It's less about the sensation, and it's more about the imagined experience. We turn inward 
to build emotional intimacy with others. Whereas if you're just having sex, physical, plain old vanilla, fun time sex, you're less inward and you're more in a shared sort of experience. We have to go inward to bring people in when it comes to the online sexual realm. So the question of all of this becomes quite simple. What happens when you identify with your persona, your avatar, whatever it is, equally as you identify with your meat space self? What is your actual identity? Well, in furry, we tend to be what's called body agnostic. When we engage in Yiffy Digital Play, we don't concern ourselves with the actual person behind the computer, but we concern ourselves with their fursona. Because of that, we're still able to build a connection. And of course, this can result in some dissonance if you actually see a picture of the person and you're like, oh, you look nothing alike. But people often find that because they have an emotionally intimate connection with the identity online, that bridges over into meat space. We find that happening more and more and more within the fandom. Within the mundane realm, that tends to be extended towards certain things. People who like uncut dick might find that somebody that is overweight and they find people that are overweight to be unattractive. They might find somebody to be attractive because they really like a body part and they're able to build some form of emotional intimacy based off of that. For us, it's not based off of parts. It's based off of identity. It's based off of the fact that we online are body agnostic. Sex, as I've mentioned before, online rarely produces long-term fulfillment when it is separated entirely from physicality, because that doesn't build emotional intimacy. If you watch a porn star, if you watch their entire catalog, over time you're going to find that you're not as attractive to them, because, well, you don't build that emotional intimacy. It's just, oh look, it's somebody that is being used in an objectifying sense, and you don't have that connection. Within the body agnostic community that we have, though, intimacy is derived from the identity. And so the confusion when the digital identity is vastly different from the meat space identity, again, a corporeal inconsistency, that confusion is often overcome simply by the fact that we are able to identify our own identities with the other's identity. And that sounds like a really weird statement, so I'll try to break it down a little bit. The identity that we have of ourselves on the internet, our own personas, our own complex two-part identity, because we have an emotional connection to that, that becomes our own identity. And because we have an emotional connection to ourselves, that bridges outward to other people we form bonds with. Because of that, the physical corporeal inconsistency is often less of a, of a situation of us being quote-unquote catfished, and it's more of a situation of, I didn't know what you look like, and I didn't really care. I've got to know you online, and quite frankly, I don't care what you look like in the real world, because I like you as your identity. I like you as you are. And you could be completely different, but I have that emotional connection. That's the difference between catfishing and the fandom. Does catfishing happen? Yeah, of course. People use other people's artwork. People use other people's pictures, real-life pictures, to say, well, yeah, this is me. And it's like, clearly that's not you. That's um, 100% a picture of Serena Williams. 
people do this, that's catfishing. But within the fandom where we're body agnostic and we don't necessarily give a damn about what somebody looks like in the real world, we're able to circumvent that. We're able to circumvent the confusion of corporeal inconsistency and we're able to build emotional connections. The sexual sort of realm in terms of digital advancement is changing. Modern computing is getting far more wooby-dooby and it's getting far more to a point where people can just kind of do what they want. Hookup apps completely changed the landscape. Grinder, Tinder, all of these made things far more accessible and far more simplified for people. It is theorized that furries, we've been kind of helping drive sex as an act forward as well. So the idea there is that we are able to help the mundane world as they examine us as a community, realize that digital sex is far less about the physicality and it is more about the narrative and that is okay. Because by building emotional connections through narratives, again, as opposed to traditional porn, cyber sex, things like that, you have to inject humanity into that narrative. If you look at free artwork, it's not just blank faces glazed over stairs. We inject a sense of ourselves into our artwork, into the avatars that we create, into our online presence. And that's what drives the emotional intimacy. Sex is an, it is an intimate act and it follows a similar pattern. As you build these emotional connections and as you create these shared narratives, you experiment with one another. You find what you like. You find what you don't like. Hey, I really like it when we role play about water sports, but I don't really like it when you tie me up in a role play. We do the same thing in real life. We experiment with our partners. We find out likes, dislikes, erogenous zones, where to touch, where not to touch, and we create a physical narrative. Kinky, sex, BDSM, scene play follows this narrative as well. And digital advancements into VR follow this formula and they keep this formula pure, but they add a few new components. How well designed is the model, your avatar? How advanced is your computer? Are you able to render everything in 1080p or are you on 4K? How well drawn is the artwork? If you're looking at art that is drawn for you, is it realistic enough? Does it have enough humanity drawn into it? Is it something that is of a quality that evokes emotion from you? These sorts of advancements are driving the fandom further and further ahead of this curve. We've mastered this formula. We've allowed furries to have emotional ties with their personas and with the personas of other people. These emotional ties that we are able to create by establishing a narrative has shifted the need for us to have emotional connections purely on a physical level, and we have co-developed a digitally acceptable level of emotional connection and emotional dependence upon one another. Mind you, this will not fully replace physically um, physical emotional intimacy. But this does enhance how we perceive sex within the fandom and how we per pursue sex within the fandom. And as we continue to make advancements, the rest of the world follows. The fandom is the trendsetter. We are blazing the trail when it comes to digital sex. And we have been since we started. 
And it's important to understand all of this because some people, when you think about role play, when you think about people going on to mucks or second life, it doesn't interest you. And quite frankly, that's fine. It doesn't have to interest you. But for people who are interested in it, this is kind of where the future is trending. As more and more sex robots are built, more and more sexual VR demos are built, as more contraptions are built that allow for real-world, long-distance sexual connection, things like the hush plug, things like there's a dildo that you can kind of control the vibrations on for both you and your partner. As sex toys advance and become part of the internet of shit, we begin to establish an emotional intimacy that we can use those tools to enhance the narrative that we have built. Sexual play on the internet for the fandom has been a narrative. The rest of the world is just figuring that out. And again, I know a lot of this sounds strictly academic, but from an academic standpoint, from a sociological standpoint, this shit is fascinating. Because people like to talk shit about the fandom, about how we're just a bunch of yiffy little fuckers and we're going to yiff in hell. But the rest of the world is following in our footsteps, and they're failing where we've succeeded. And isn't that a fucker? Isn't that amazing? But that's only one side of the equation, though. All of this information is great, but it doesn't apply to everyone, as I said. Not everybody has digital sex. So how is sex in person? How is physical sex different for furries? What sets it apart? And this is something that Vero is a little bit more skilled in and a little bit more versed in. And I've been talking forever, so I'm going to let you take over, Vero. Sure, sure. So I think it's, you know, important to think about what makes, you know, sex in the fandom unique in the sense of just like when you're actually having it, right? And I think one of the things is actually kind of something that bleeds over from the virtual space, and that's the richness of identity and role play that furries can participate in can make dirty talk during sex really rich and meaningful because it's not just things like, oh, I'm going to lick your pussy or I'm going to suck your cock, but it's, you know, all the richness of what you might get from any furry role play that you read on F-List or So Furry or something like that. So, you know, I think that, that adds a lot and that makes sex really unique. And again, it gets back to this idea of sex in, in furry being a lot more about the mental headspace aspects of sex and a bit less about the physicality. Now, that's something that furry has in common with BDSM sexual practice. And I think that's why there's a huge overlap between BDSM practice and the furry fandom because I think once you're already used to this idea of arousal coming from what's going on between your ears rather than between your thighs, um, that you kind of get into this space where things like power exchange, power dynamics become very hot, become very arousing. Because this idea of giving and taking and submitting and dominating, all of those aspects get kind of played up because that's more the mental richness of sex and not the, the physical sensation of sex. So for me, that's actually how I experience myself in the furry fandom in particular, is because my sexual drive is so mental and so emotional, I really enjoy a lot of dominance and submission play because to me that adds a lot of richness to the sexual connection that I experience with other furries. Um, so that's really important to keep in mind, that the mentality makes things, bridging the gap to BDSM practice very easy. That's also very, I think, why there's a huge overlap between 
the uh, pup and handler community and the furry community. And again, because of this richness of mental experience and role play that, that goes on in those communities. Uh, but in terms of the physical uh, things that happen, one thing is I think furries are definitely more comfortable using toys in the bedroom than people uh, from other fans might be, uh, in particular because we seem to really enjoy our, uh, our dog dicks, not to put too fine a point on it, but, um, you know, that's, that's a big deal. Um, and I think it's kind of cool because all, some people really do require toys to come, and so it's nice that in, uh, in this fandom we kind of don't seem to have a problem with using toys to come. So I think that's pretty cool. Because actually, I think people you know who aren't in the fandom might be kind of shocked to hear that. People who are in the fandom might find it weird that you know people who aren't in the fandom find toys kind of this almost taboo to use when you're having partnered sex. You're familiar with this idea, right, Metrico, that basically unless you are providing the pleasure directly, that you didn't really accomplish that orgasm. It's like your partner wasn't there or something, right? Yeah, it's again, it goes back to the idea of narratives. For some reason, when it happens in meat space, people forget that sex is a story. It's a narrative that you're writing together. Yeah, it's not in the physical sensation is basically just shared masturbation. You could and it it can literally be you jerking each other off or it can be you you being inside of each other in one way or another. Like, that's the thing, right? So the physical sensation is always kind of secondary to what's going on in your head. It always becomes mental stimuli. So that's kind of, it's important to remember that your biggest sexual organ is your brain. I think furries play that out in spades. That's what makes furry sex so good. And I think it's why I tend to prefer sex with furries to sex with non-furries. I have like 98.8% of the sex I have is probably with furries. So, um, yeah, there's a reason for that. It's not just because it's easier to find. It's also because I actually enjoy it more because I have more of a shared headspace with a furry than I do with someone else. And I can rely on them to kind of go where I want them to go a lot more easily because I, there's this shared excited expectations that comes with that, a lot of this. So that all helps. Um, the other thing is, I think there's a lot more comfort with things like costuming being involved in the bedroom. I know a lot of furries have uh, body image issues or don't really like being fully nude while having sex. And the fandom is a great place to kind of, I, I don't want to say get away with that, but for that to be accepted. Uh, I know a lot of furries who have sex while, you know, wearing partial fursuit and basically exposing the bare minimum they need to in order to actually have penetrative sex. There's a lot of where people who like to wear leather and neoprene. Uh, and not, not, not all that's for it necessarily even just the, the, the tactility of the, of the neoprene. Some of it's actually because of body image issues. And, you know, I think it's kind of cool that the fandom is, I think, overall fairly body positive and fairly sex positive and doesn't shame people for having non-Adonis-like body types for the most part, which I think is awesome. And, you know, it doesn't deny the fact that people who are, you know, overweight and obese still have sex and that aren't still entitled to enjoy sex and to be attracted to people. So um, I think it's really cool that the fandom indulges all of that. But uh, I think it's cool as well that, you know, there's not necessarily an encouragement that you have to be fully nude to indulge in sex uh, all the time in the fandom. I think that's kind of a cool thing to point out. Um, and also, I think there's a lot more, uh, if, like in, at conventions and such, obviously, I think there's certainly more acceptance of, uh, I don't want to say casual sex, but at least sex it doesn't require a whole lot of foreknowledge of the individual you were having sex with. I think there's a difference, though, between what people tend to think of as hooking up and the type of sex that tends to happen at furry conventions. Um, it's not really the same thing. If you, for example, go to a gay bar and hook up with a guy, 
you don't really know anything about that person, and the odds of you staying in touch afterwards are small, I would say, right? Just, like, it's a stereotypical experience. Versus somebody you, quote-unquote, hook up with at a furcon, the odds of you staying in touch with that person and or becoming very close to them if the sex goes well are high, right? You're really making friends. So I feel like in the fandom, it's more people are willing to have sex with people who are they open to a durable connection with versus people are willing to just have sex willy-nilly. And I think that's not a, distin a distinction that people often see. And that's why I think people often have a negative view of people hooking up at cons. But I think the fandom is open to the idea that sex can be a, the first uh, way to meet someone, right? And that can be a way of saying, okay, we're compatible sexually, now let's see how else we're compatible. And a lot of things, a lot of furries play that way, and that's okay. Um, it's a valid way to meet people. Famously, I think Dan Savage met his husband by playing that way. So, you know, I think that's totally fine. But um, in the fan, I think it happens a lot. And it's how I met a lot of my partners, was we had sex, and then we realized we were compatible. Instead of the other way around. And that's okay to do. Um, and the relationships are just as valid and just as strong. So... Don't shame people for having sex, basically. Um, but in the fandom, that's, it's pretty much not done a whole lot. Um, it does happen. But I think it's people accept that sex at cons can be a little bit um, spontaneous and that that can be okay and that that can be the spark of something that's okay to do. So I think that's pretty neat that that's kind of accepted. Somewhat accepted, at least. So, there you go. Uh, do you have anything to add on this, uh, Code? I've got to kind of brainstorm. Yeah. I mean, honestly... All of this, as, as we've been saying, is that it's all about the narratives that we are able to create within the fandom, because our identities as our personas tend to be so entrenched within our actual identity. We're able to sort of move past the idea that sex is just this purely physical act, and we're able to engage in the fantasy, the narrative, the shared mutual experience, and that enables us to build emotionally intimate bonds across vast distances. It's no secret that within the fandom, long-distance relationships are almost more common than they are in other forms of groups and other fandoms and other areas. It's a byproduct of us being a community that thrives and exists mostly on the internet, but it's also because we have cracked the code. And when it comes to us having sex in person, we've been able to sort of overcome these emotional boundaries of shame, of not being into it, of incorporating outside tools, outside thinking, outside sort of concepts into the bedroom. And that's where the digital kind of divide becomes bridged. We take the narratives that we create on the internet and we turn them into physical actuality, which doesn't happen when you watch porn doesn't really happen when you watch somebody on cam. You don't go and have sex with that person. But within the fandom, because identity is so tied online and in meat space, we're able to bridge that divide. Furry sex is unique. It is absolutely unique. The rest of the world is trying to catch up, and I'm not joking about this. They're trying to get where we are in terms of acceptance, in terms of being mostly body agnostic. We build our bonds based off of identity, not off of aesthetic. We are an identity organization. 
Rarely are we a performance sort of community. We do have performances. We do have people that get in for a suit and they dance and they sing and they play music. They are creative, but they also have deep emotional bonds to who they are in flesh and on the internet. So furry sex is unique. It's something that we can often ridicule. It's something that we often sort of take for granted being part of the fandom. But I find that people who leave the fandom for whatever reason they have, they tend to regret that because they don't find that level of fulfillment. People who are within the fandom often have issues when they date somebody that are that is mundane. And it tends to come from this lack of sexual creativity and freedom, from the idea that sex is a performance, and it's not an experience, it's not a narrative, and the lack of willingness to incorporate external tools, toys, ideas, role plays into the bedroom. We are fortunate to have this, and we take it for granted. Yif, furry sex, it's great. It really is. It really, it truly is. Furry is one of the most sex-positive communities to be part of because of this. It's not because we have a lot of sex. It's because we're having sex in the right way if we look at the way that everything is trending. We're setting the trend. We're at the top of it. We're, we're all tops in this day. <laughs> so let's be mindful of that. Let's continue to be sex-positive. Again, I'm not saying we need to have fucking orgies in a goddamn convention hotel lobby. But what I am saying is that we should continue to foster the acceptance and the discussion and the experimentation and the freedom of expression for people to have ethical, sexual, emotional connections with one another and not treat it as something that we take for granted. think we're going to move on to our question. It's uh, We actually got this question from Twitter, and it sort of plays a little bit into what we just talked about. Uh, the questioner um, wrote with the subject line of having a smaller penis. They write, hey guys, uh, do you have any material on how to deal with small penis embarrassment in relationships or just in general? My boyfriend is quite a larger one than me, and honestly, it sometimes makes me feel like maybe it's disappointing to him. He says it's not, but it's more of a problem with myself. Especially with most popular After Dark Furry accounts being especially gifted, you can feel like you're extremely small, and there's not really much you can do about it. So, a few points. If your mate says that they like you, and they like your dick, take that as a yes. That is a victory. That is a checkmark. Absolutely. Now, you're talking about you having an issue with yourself. Now, here's the deal. You can take supplements and they don't really work. They just increase blood flow and it makes you look a little bit bigger. But you're kind of bound to taking those supplements in perpetuity. You can use a penis pump and that will engorge your dick a little bit. But you're bound to using that in perpetuity. There's no real way to make your dick bigger. So that's the unfortunate side of that. But the good news is that your dick is perfect. Your dick is you. It's your dick. It doesn't have to be the biggest dick. It doesn't have to be the smallest dick. It's your dick. People tend to associate big dicks with being 
sexually successful, with being sexually attractive, but kind of what we talked about in the show, the fandom tends to be rather body agnostic. I've dated people that have dicks bigger than mine, and I've dated people that have dicks smaller than mine, thicker than mine, skinnier than mine, cut, uncut. I don't care about that. And I don't compare my dick to theirs, because I kind of like who I am as a person, and I know that they like who I am as a person, and I like them as a person. And regardless of the size of their dick, I still like them. Most of the people that I have dated, I have started dating them before I had sex with them, before I saw a naked picture of them, before I saw what their booty looks like. And I know that that kind of sounds a little bit counterintuitive to some advice that you might hear sometimes from us. Sometimes you want to have sex before you go and start dating somebody to see if you're sexually compatible. The good news is that dick size does not equate to sexual compatibility. It just kind of equates to you being self-conscious. You just kind of have to accept the fact that your dick is the size that it is. And it's perfectly fine the size that it is. It's good. It's, it's all good. Yeah, I think, I mean, just to relate this, I guess, to myself and just talk about this from my own perspective, like, so I'm a top, right? And some people that I'm with have dicks that are bigger than mine, and some of them have dicks that are smaller than mine. And sometimes, I mean, you, excuse me, you have to have a lot of confidence to top somebody who's better endowed than you. And that can actually be a really, like, difficult thing to, like, get your head around sometimes, because you feel like, you know, is this really going in the right direction, you know? But... It's, it really comes down to the way you present yourself and the confidence and, you know, somebody's responding to you having a dominant personality where you're taking charge and you seem like you're in control of the situation and you know what's going to happen. You've got a plan or you're executing and you're, you're really confident in what you're doing. Um, they're, not going to, they're going to be responding to your confidence and your capability in the bedroom and not responding to how many inches you are. Because frankly, you can't tell that much when you're biting a pillow anyway how big something is going into your butt you can just tell that something's going into your butt right like it's not really you're not your butt can't count inches it's not how that works um so you know um that's i think important to remember like and the thing is i top i have mates who have dicks that are bigger than mine who i often top and i don't get intimidated by the fact that they're bigger or feel like there's something wrong with the fact that i'm topping them it's just i mean it's a mental thing like we talked about all throughout the show I'm, we're wrapped up in the mental headspace of me being the dominant and them being the submissive. So the physicality of them having a big dick isn't actually all that relevant in terms of the fact that we're just kind of acting out a, a mental play that we're we're kind of having it in our in our own kind of shared emotional headspace. So I think kind of realizing that it's okay to kind of be in that headspace and not worry about oh he's got 1.75 inches bigger than me. You know that's I mean maybe he does but whatever like that's it's not that relevant, right? And I think people, not to broaden your question too much, but people, we often get questions from people who say, you know, I'm really concerned my partner doesn't get hard while we're having sex. Like, I top him and he doesn't get hard, or I'm really concerned I don't get hard, or, you know, or that, you know, he gets, all, all these kind of dick-related questions all boil down to the fact that as long as you're both enjoying yourself and experiencing pleasure and connecting emotionally with your partners, whose dick is hard when, how big each hard or soft dick is, it's not all that relevant. It, 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 that's, not, that's not what sex is about. It's not about inches and centimeters. It's about emotions and feelings and satisfaction and connectedness and empathy and all these good things and compersion. 
So try to focus on the emotional experiential side of the sex and not so much on the, you know, I guess the, the metric <laughs> side of sex. And I think you'll have a slightly more fulfilling experience because you're, really, you're letting yourself get distracted by something that's not actually all that relevant to sexual pleasure if you don't make it uh, a huge focal point. Now, some people do fetishize large dicks, and for those people, it might be essential. But unless your partner literally is a size queen, they've told you they're not. Um, unless they have a very strong size queen fetish, you're, you're probably fine with whatever size you have, right? Unless you're, I can't get off unless they're nine inches. Well, then, okay, sorry, we're not compatible. But unless that's the case, you should be okay. You know, a few things that I do want to say. If you do find that there are actual anxiety issues that do surround having a smaller dick, um, there's um, small dick anxiety, essentially. it's um, If you do find that you are falling kind of within that, uh, if you have small penis syndrome, then it might be helpful to talk to a sex therapist to find ways that you can practice body affirming exercises and affirmations to realize that your body is good just the way that it is. Uh, they might recommend there are some tools like the andropenis, which is a medical device that can slightly extend your dick. It's uncomfortable and they don't highly recommend it, but it is something that some people do get prescribed to them. It's a class two medical device. But what really you have to kind of come into, I would say, an understanding is that most men, we are brought up to view our dick as being a sign of our virility. It is a sign of our masculinity. And it's a sign of toxic masculinity, actually. On average, most people have a dick that is perfectly sized. It's the average worldwide is 5.2 inches. If you watch porn, if you look at porn stars, if you go on AD Twitter, the average kind of bumps up to eight inches. And that's just kind of how it is. But you just have to become comfortable with who you are. Your genitals don't say anything about your character. And your boyfriend fell in love with your character. You can compare your dick until the cows come home. He's probably always going to have a bigger dick than you. And that's just how it is. But the good news is that if you go out to dinner, it doesn't matter who has the bigger dick. You're both there together as partners, as mates, as lovers. Partners in crime. So don't think too terribly much about it. Don't worry about it. But if you do have anxiety and it is causing you to experience issues with having a fully realized intimate relationship, I would highly recommend you speak out and you seek a sex therapist, a kinky, fetish-friendly, sex-positive therapist who can help you move past that anxiety and kind of learn to love yourself as a fully realized individual. Um, one note. The older that a man gets, the more their dick changes. Dicks grow over time. They shrink over time. They get more wrinkled over time. They stop working as well over time. That's just kind of how it is. Male health is a weird thing. And the dick is kind of a weird organ that we have. So don't place too much stock in the quality of your penis. Your penis is perfect. Make sure that the rest of you is. We're going to end our show there. 
Next week, we're going to have a little bit more of a fun topic. It's going to be DIY BDSM. It is Acronym Central. Pew, pew, pew. But we realized that basically a lot of furries can't always afford to go on Bad Dragon and Mr. S. Leather to buy all their favorite toys and accoutrements for their sex play. So we're going to talk about some poor man's alternatives that still get you most of the way there and perhaps will even get you off. So that's an option. And alternatives that are mostly safe and not prone to put yourself in harm's way. (laughs) You can come up with all sorts of alternatives, but we're going to do the ethical DIY for BDSM. That's next week. If you have questions, comments about this show, if you think that it was way too academic, if I should never do that again, if you have questions about BDSM, comments about the top of the show, hit us up on our contact page, feralattraction.com forward slash contact. So many ways to get into touch with us. Twitter, email. There's an anonymous email form right there on the page. No excuse to not get into touch with us through that. You can also call us so many ways. We also would ask you, if you enjoy our content, to go to our iTunes or Google Play Music store page and give us a rating and a review. Like us, don't like us, let everybody know. Helps our visibility, helps people enter the conversation and it helps us out in general. Another way you can help us out is by going to our Patreon. We have different donation tiers. Your donations, being a patron, helps us continue putting the show on, helps us go to more conventions, get more materials, do more research, have more giveaways. It's a great way to participate in the community, and it's a great way, especially if you find use and practicality within the show, to give back to others to help them find it as well. One of our tiers is that we give shout-outs at the end of every show. One of our patrons is Miss Hyde. Now, Miss Hyde recently participated in a streak for the Tigers. It was on the 10th of August at the London Zoo. She ran around basically nude, running around everything just sky-clad, painted up with a fursuit head on. If you would like to help donate after the fact to charities that helped protect tigers in the wild, please go to her Twitter, at Sparks. You can also find her fundraising page, which is at justgiving.com, within the show notes. Please donate. This is a very important cause. It's an amazing charity that she is working with. And also, your donations to everybody that helped forced her to run around the London Zoo naked with a fursuit head on. It was pretty fucking amazeballs. Snares is another patron of ours. Snares has a Patreon comic project. And you can find more information about that at his Patreon, patreon.com forward slash snares. It's a one-stop site for commission and artist information. You can find all about his comic projects, page updates, commissions, by just donating a dollar every month. If you're looking for literature, Zarpolis is an author. If you're a fan of furry and high-tech sci-fi stories, you might be interested in the Para-Imperium Universe by Zarpolis. He has actually recently published a short novel with the Thurston Hall Press titled The Pride of Parahumans. You can check that out on Amazon. Or maybe you're just looking for a new friend on Twitter. Myron the Fluffy is going to be your new fluffy friend if you're looking for pictures and daily red panda dog ramblings. Follow them at Myron the Fluffy. Again, links to everybody's Twitters, Patreons, websites can be found within the show notes on our website. They are linked at the end of every podcast posting. Next week, again, our topic is going to be DIY BDSM. Until then, I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. Be well. Be well.